0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. I am your host, David Dacre. I'm a hospitality professional with two decades of experience in the bar and restaurant industry. My pursuit in this podcast is to have difficult conversations of our industry and of society as a whole.
1: I care about everybody. If you're a young African American, uh, an immigrant, you can go anywhere in this state. You just need to be conservative, not liberal. I care about everybody. If you're a young African-American, a, an immigrant, you can go anywhere in this state. You just need to be conservative, not liberal.
0: Later in the uh, episode, in this episode, I'll be talking to Gustavo Arellano. But first, I'd like to address a few things that I've been noticing uh, online. For one, I noticed that there's... a uh, talk of the suburbianite woman female white female. And there's an article that talks about how the suburbianite white female is is uh, abandoning uh, Trump, in part because uh, they also didn't vote for the Republicans during the t- 2018 election, but even more so after the last four years and um, given his, his handling of the coronavirus. But it also has to do with this like, masculinity, right? This misogyny that has the Trump Trumpers in the Trump era and uh, the Republican Party in general, normally. So these females aren't leaving in droves, uh, but it's enough to sway the election. And evidently, they've come to realize that in part MAGA meant that women needed to get back into the kitchen and just take care of the kids, right? The idea of going back to the 1950s, where father knows best, was, is, a, is more appealing to the male than it is to the female. So numbers for white males in suburbia uh, have been steady uh, for Trump uh, all the elections and as far as, as the way they're voting right now. And, but is not the same reality for women. Because, given the fact that living in suburbia, living in in, in a home rather than in an apartment, not a home, but in a house versus an apartment, then there's a certain factor of uh, isolation that is is provided. And the bubble of suburbia, uh, that aside, I'm talking about the individual um, house, right? Because the one thing that doesn't get talked about too much is, is abuse in suburbia. Maybe it does. Maybe I'm not in those circles, but I hear a lot of the stuff that happens in the inner city. But in suburbia, there's a lot of um, spousal abuse. And it happens more whenever there is the more misogynist the society, the more misogynist the individual, the male, and the more that that is imposed into the household so whether it's verbal psychological or physical abuse like you have to admit that the seclusion of that house versus an apartment gives that that autonomy to the abusive male of terrorizing the family and the unhinged masculin- masculinity of the suburbanite white male at it, you know, uh, intertwined with Trump's rhetoric, makes that even m- the more possible. And I think that there are women out there that are have been experiencing that, and they're probably neighbors that know without knowing, you know. And so they're also turning away from it. Because it's you know it's one of those things that the neighbor knows there's something going on, but they don't know why they can't, they can't say, and then nobody wants to talk and is that cycle. And so I think that might be part of it. but the other part being that this article points out, a lot of those women did not support the separation of children from their parents at the border as a matter of, of policy and um, and their views on, on race, are slightly better than that of of their male counterparts. So throwing all of that in together, the article didn't talk about the, the, the spousal abuse. That's me adding that in because if it's something that is in that environment, in that bubble, misogyny is not going to make it better. It's only going to make it worse. Okay? So that different reality that the white female in suburbia lives, I think is starting to you know turn her away from from the totalitarian misogynist approach that Trump is uh, executing the office of the presidency. All right, to my next point. And the next point is that of Malcolm X. I've been seeing in Instagram and in, in uh, YouTube in particular in the comments section where people are using the uh, the in um, a, a the quote a quote by Malcolm X who says that the white liberal is the most dangerous person um, in America for a black person. Normally, this is used by someone that is in um, a, a black conservative. So right now, there is this. Blexit, which is this black exit, uh, which is black people exiting, uh, getting away from the Democratic Party because they feel that the uh, Democratic Party has failed them, has uh, expected their vote without really having to do anything in return. And there there's some truths to that. Um, But then I think that right now, all of that information is being manipulated now. The only reason that I wouldn't think it's manipulated is if, if it's creating leverage. In other words, where now the Democrats, uh, you can hold their feet to the fire and uh, make them change certain policies, important policies. And so Malcolm talks about, in part in that quote, he's talking also about the complacency of the people of color, Right. You know, as he says, it was the Negro, right? That was the term that he uses. And in context, when you think about what he's saying and when he's saying it, he's talking. He's he's coming from a point where the white conservatives fought to keep slavery. White conservatives created Jim Crow laws. White conservatives destroyed Tulsa, and white conservatives were fighting to to prevent any civil rights. Um, laws uh, to be passed that would include people of color, and so you know, at the end of that quote, he says, "Our problems would never be solved by by the white man." And and one to, another thing to take into account: everything at that time was white and black, right? Because that's the world that that existed at the time. I mean, part of those laws, right, that I talk about. In Jim Crow, for instance, and this was right after the uh, the Civil War happened, where slaves were freed. Some of them were very good, um, um, uh, um, God plumbers, right? Let's say plumbers, or um, what I am really thinking is the the, the horseshoe repairmen. <laughs> um, um, and so, you know what I am saying. So, I am going to keep going. All right, so they had these trades, right? But if you were a white man and you had a trade, then you were just a white man with a trade. But if you were a black man with a trade, you actually had to go and get a license. You had to have a permit and you could only do business in your neighborhood, in black neighborhoods. If you didn't, then they would come and take everything away from you, essentially. They would take your license, they would take your, your ability to practice, and even worse, right? A lot worse could happen right after the the civil Civil war was over, which is whenever the Ku Klux Klan came about in order to deal right with this situation of black people starting to think that they're part of society and so given that the this is what he was looking at right and then he has the white liberal that's being complicit to this type of environment for the uh the black person, then he went after them with with vengeance. In, in part, it was the, the the white liberal society that gave space for this to happen because in the conservative white society, you just immediately lynched. First off, you never would be in TV to begin with or in newspapers or anything like that. So I see, you know, a little bit of light in that. I'm not excusing anything. I'm just saying uh, that is the context of it all. And so right now this quote is being used by conservatives to justify supporting Trump. Now there's a big big difference to me between being a conservative and supporting Trump because this guy has been able to get people like 50 Cent and and Kanye and the Ice Cube to support him but I really think that's because they saw that he pays $750 on taxes on the millions of dollars that he he has. And think about this. How many of you have paid $750 for your income tax? Do you have tens, hundreds of millions of dollars at your disposal? So, they're doing it for greed. And here's another quote. Here's, here's, here's another quote from uh, Malcolm.
2: I just told you a little while ago, these leaders that they call leaders, this included Lena Horne, this included Dick Gregory, and this included comedians, comics, trumpet players, baseball players. Show me in the white community where a comedian is a white leader. Show me in the white community where a singer is a white leader, or a dancer or a trumpet player is a white leader. These aren't leaders. These are puppets and clowns that uh, have been set up over the white community, and, or over the black community, by the white community, and have been made celebrities and usually say exactly what uh, they know that the white man wants to hear.
0: Right now, like I said, these people are using these quotes uh, and these ideas to support something that is not better than what you're criticizing. So my point here is support the Democratic Party right now, hold its feet to the fire, and then let's see where the, the, the Republican Party is in uh, in two years. Because there's a lot going on in the background right now. None of this that we're experiencing, this division that is happening right now, this is not going to end after Election Day. It might get severely worse, or it might just stay at this level. Normally, very quick action and policy has been able to soften this sort of division that, that we have going on right now. And so we can only hope for something like that, but we also have to put the feet to the fire of the, the Democratic Party. Now, some people are also saying how Trump has done more for the uh, black community than, than, than even Obama did, which is not true, and it's not true at all. The unemployment rate was already on a downward trend Whenever Trump took office, the first step act that uh, allows prison uh, people in jail, in prison, to be released early uh, because they got excessive sentencing at the time that they got you know they got thirty years for having you know a, a gram or two of, of marijuana. Um, that was already in play. Also, that was that was called the uh, what is it sentencing and perform and. Um, and Reform Act of 2015, okay, that was already in the Senate, but the Senate has been sabotaged, sabotaged everything that Obama did, and then just to roll it over to whomever they got uh, in the White House after Obama, right, so they're making it look like this is Trump's doing, now you might say it doesn't really matter, it got done, okay, here's the problem with that, the problem with that is that uh, once William Barr got into office, he started to reject a lot of the applications for that early release, and he also tried to put a lot of those people that were released back into prison. So they took all the 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 airplay, all the media that came came about with it, because that's also the one that Kim Kardashian was a part of, if you remember, and uh, and so. That was just a big play big media play because if in reality his the attorney general which is not even supposed to be his lawyer but the attorney general that he appointed is not putting people back in jail after early release for excessive um excessive sentencing then it's all bullshit so what i'm saying here is don't let the the honesty of a corrupt man cloud your judgment, because the this notion that at least he's honest is bullshit. Right? He's not. He's a corrupt person. And 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 this opportunity that they claim to be creating that uh, the Democrats don't it's also bullshit. But opportunity without access, it's uh, it's crippled. Keep that in mind.
1: I care about everybody. If you're a young African-American, an immigrant, you can go anywhere in this state. You just need to be conservative, not liberal. I care about everybody. If you're a young African-American, an immigrant, you can go anywhere in this state. You just need to be conservative, not liberal.
0: My guest today is Gustavo Arellano. He is a uh, columnist for the L.A. Times. He was the uh, publisher and editor of the uh, OC Weekly. uh, That's Orange County uh, Weekly. And um, he's also, he had the column, author of the column, Ask a Mexican. Um, He is uh, author of a couple of books. Uh, One of them is Ask a Mexican. The other ones would be Orange County, a Personal History. And uh, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. The interesting thing is uh, he himself will say that the uh, orange county personal history uh, didn't do very well at all as far as uh, sales but uh, what it did is um, it gave uh, a, an account and a history of uh, orange county that is uh, more honest for those of you from southern california uh, definitely go ahead and uh, pick up a copy of that now i came across um gustavo through Hilberto Mezcal, um, that's Hilberto, which is he is the brand ambassador for uh, Illegal Mezcal, uh, I believe the West Coast, and um, he did an interview with him. And the way he came across, and in, in the interview, which was mostly about food and drinking, and you know a few other things, local things there in uh, in Southern California, he came across as something that I, I have difficulty finding here in Texas. Uh, which is a, a liberal with more progressive views and, and, a, and a way of expressing his Latino uh, identity uh, without reservation. That is something that I find um, refreshing. And so I, was, I contacted him and uh, we, set it, we set up the interview. So let's go ahead and uh, have a listen. of my questions is, is it an act of futility to try and join, uh, bring together the Latino vote? Because (laughs) you have the very conservative Latinos that are religious and they're family based and they're not going to change their minds very easily on anything because it's, you know, God first. And then there is the more modern and more liberal uh, Latino that understands that, we a a community will always get things done better than the the individual uh right and so they tend to vote in in that in that way and so but they're two very distinct groups
1: yeah i mean it's just like any politics how do you get people to vote for a candidate period uh you could be completely strident and partisan which is kind of like what trump does but then on the other hand trump does has created this hodgepodge of people with different things that, you know, they appeal to him. It's just like, it's just like with any candidate. So with Latinos, like you might have these religious minded Latinos, like the evangelicals who anti-abortion, even anti-gay marriage, but they could still be pro-immigrant. They don't wanna see like their own people getting deported, you know, and the the people on the left, they always laugh. Like I I remember there was a story that the LA Times did about a a Latino pastor who voted, who was all pro-Trump, and then he got deported, but he's okay because hey, it's Trump doing it or whatnot. So yeah. I just think in general, it's not good to it's not good to think it's hopeless to um, convert people into your side or whatnot. So you have to approach it with reason, you have to approach it with empathy, and you have to approach it with patience as well. And you know, th- you know, there is so- sometimes people do have non-negotiables. I think. What I've discovered is like the, the most non-negotiable thing some people have is abortion. That, but who knows? Who knows? Like you never know. You can't just dismiss people because you'll never know in, unless you try.
0: Yeah. Well, I see that you know, the misogyny is strong, in the in the in the Trump camp. Yeah. And, and that is something that is global. If you look at yeah. the majority of the world, probably it's 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 misogynist.
1: It's a story of mankind, literally mankind right, right there. <laughs> right. And so
0: he appeals to that. And that's, I think, where his his uh, his demographic breaks. Right. And it's not just what has he's been accused of, which is just the white evangelical. Um, but that but there's this level of supremacy within his camp. And mm-hmm. I think that that is where I get confused. When it comes to these people that that are either Indian, I seen Indian Pakistanis, yeah, yeah. very pro Trump, and then you know within our community, the Latinos, the Latinos pro Trump is the same thing. He's he's this masculine figure, mm-hmm. which I can't see it right other than than being you know rude uh, and obnoxious. It that's but that's that's very low. That's the lowest common denominator.
1: Yeah but some people like that bluster it's all about oh you know el, el, el está sin pelos en la lengua you know he has no hair on his tongue it's a mexican saying uh, that's the guy just says whatever's on his mind and some people respect that especially people especially cultures that have that tendency to side with the more misogynistic the more macho aspects they, they no one i mean i don't think anyone wants a leader who's seen as weak and that's always been Trump's thing. He's like this bravado, this bravura. I don't think he's strong at all. I think he's frankly flailing. But people fall for the easiest stuff. I mean, God, this is a country where, well, uh Dancing with the Stars, a really totally <laughs> trifling show, get, has been on for over twenty years and always gets big ratings. Like humans will, humans will immediately fall for anything. Like do not, un, you know, do not overestimate the intelligence of humans. We're uh, the, the writer louise Air, i think you pronounce it this indigenous writer louise Airditch or whatever air uh said something like you know humans are just like animals except we are you know humans are animals but we uh, uh trick ourselves into thinking we're not
0: right that we're smarter than the previous and that we're smarter uh, than other animals
1: yeah exactly yeah. we're not we're not we're not
0: yeah recently this week we saw that ice cube was willing to to go to and, and talk to Trump after just last year saying I'll never ever work with Trump right he, yeah. he, he put his foot down and said this is what I will or will not do and this week we saw him completely backtrack on that but what I saw was that his leadership within the his, his ability to draw people as a leader whatever realm that, that is within what communities, the black community, right, is that um, he was able to make a point, he was able to make a stance, right, and for me, it's sort of like, who, where are the Latino leaders at that level, right, because there's been some rumor about him having some dealings with Qatar and Steve Bannon, and, and there might be something going on in the background that he needs diplomacy. Yeah. You know, from the United States to help him out. But that's somebody that is worth $160 million getting involved in this uh, political climate and, and getting both feeds in, right? So where are the Latinos for us at that level? You know yeah, that?
1: The, yeah, the, the one, well, hell, you want a Latino leader? Look at Artie Moreno, the billionaire owner of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim express his support for trump the the, the latino leaders the, the ones with that sort of influence they're for trump the the ceo of goya also saying hey we need to go for trump Los ricos they they all go for trump ice cubes actually interesting in the fact that he was so stridently for trump but he still insists that he's not trump he just want for trump he just wanted to like have this plan or whatnot frankly i haven't heard much about it except people are just like what the hell you went from fuck the police to like just yeah. hang out <laughs> with trump what but um You know, what you're seeing, especially with the left and what's really driving Latino politics in this era is the left is the very lack of big name leaders. And it's all from the it's all from the bottom up, like the grassroots campaigns. I mean, that was the whole thing with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Although, you know, with Bernie, he was also as much of a demo, you know, demigod among his followers as Trump is with his but you don't see like after Bur- after Bernie, you didn't see anyone else within his realm like going big because they, maybe AOC, but AOC was is kind of her own thing as well. But mostly it's all these small, like uh, these uh, community activists. I actually did a story about it from the Los Angeles Times where I said the genius of the Bernie campaign in California to get all these Latinos to vote is that they s- sought out specifically young Latinos activists in small towns we're talking about rural california not the big cities or in neighborhoods of big cities and just said all right go for it you know your community better than us we're not going to come here as like outsiders with a big reputation and tell you what to do you all know what to do and that worked brilliantly for the sanders campaign absolutely brilliantly and you know but that's something that uh, especially when it comes to democratic party machine in general you don't really see that they're the Democrats, they're the ones who are like, "Oh, we need another Julian Castro, or you know, uh, We need another, yeah, um, yeah you know, uh, I mean, that's basically it in terms that's of it. big name. Yeah, big name recognition. But Latinos, especially young Latinos, don't want that. They want, they want a totally like uh, d- democratic, small D. In other words, like everyone's involved. No, what? No one person goes up to the top. But in the United States, that's not how politics work. Politics demand that you get these charismatic people or people with followings to get the power and then run with it and then sprinkle whatever they want to their underlings. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I saw that the uh, LA Times and the Daily t- yesterday had a piece on um, Arizona mm-hmm. uh, doing the same thing. And, and I thought that, that seemed very effective, um, which then leads me to the next idea not so much a question but I, I, I want to see what you think of this yeah and that is that you know as a Latino in Texas right we're a conservative state yeah. and here even the liberals own guns <laughs> so that like that issue that, that has separated like New York and California from from you know the uh, the conservatives the liberals from those places um, here is different because a, a, a Texas liberal, is very different than a, a California or New York, totally. because there's a lot of conservative values, but there's a line drawn to where there there are things that need to be done for the community. So taxes instead of going to big corporations, which to me that's that's my main drive. Oftentimes, is you look at the subsidies for large corporations versus uh, how much is being spent to uh, for communities um, that pay those taxes, yeah. and there's a, a huge disparity. So. In my mind, is the, the the Southern Texas type of liberal the future for the Democratic Party?
1: Hmm, no, it, it, it's, it's a California progressive wing. That's the one that's exciting the young people. Look at AOC. You look at um, look at the state of California, the sanctuary state. You know, like uh, we're supposed to ban the combustible engine by twenty thirty five. Like, and as California, and and you see all these Californians moving to Texas and upending the politics as well. I mean, you had 700,000 Californians move to Texas like in the past decade or so, it's an exodus. And those people are bringing with them their votes and their values and they're, you know, they're going to change the Democratic Party. But especially with the young people, look at all the protests that have happened this year with Black Lives Matter. Those people don't want centrists. Those people don't want moderately conservative Democrats. They want the full fledged. And I'm not saying it's a winning strategy, I, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens in this presidential campaign. And then in the 2022, uh, well, no, I mean, you saw the 2018 uh, general, uh, you know, midterm elections, you saw the whole squad. You had all these very, very progressive, if not democratic, socialist, young women of color running and energizing the base. Uh, you, know, we, you know, even the Castro brothers, they're a little bit more on the left scale, although they kind of have to temper themselves because yeah. it is Texas, but you know, yeah, I, I don't see. Uh, I don't see uh, Texas Democrats uh, running the conversation the way they used to in the past with LBJ and what's his name? Um, uh, oh, God. The, now I now I'm blanking on the name, uh, but the guy who was uh, Lloyd Benson, who ran He yeah. was, uh, the, the vice president uh, uh, pick for Michael Dukakis, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 Hmm. So then how does the democratic party uh follow through on their promises because that's been the main concern the the main gripe with people that are agreeing with the ice cube or kanye or you know these people that are, are really just surprising the shit out of the entire world because they're they're huge names now the money thing makes perfect sense to me you know i know that you know the rich stick with the rich and so that is one part but then for somebody like kanye it didn't surprise me that much because he's been an asshole for a long time <laughs> you know i've appreciated his music to a degree but I, i've sure. never liked the person ice cube you know i, I grew up you were probably the same yeah. age and yeah. grew up with that and he, that's a, as anti-establishment as we knew growing up and now well as i say that i, I realized that all the anti-establishment people militias and, and conservatives and whatnot are now full-on establishment because trump is in the white house Mm -hmm. and so and that applies to them so how is it that we the democratic party is going to follow through on their promises to regain the trust
1: just follow through on the promises i mean it's as simple as that it's as simple as that but the problem with the party politics is that and especially the way washington is is you you haven't had the democrats haven't had the house and the senate since 1994 when new gingrich broke that so they have the house right now but then like remember especially with these bills like they've had the house uh, since 2018 but then they also have to have the approval of the senate or the or, or at the end the president to do that so if they gain uh, control of house senate and the presidency woohoo here comes all the fun uh, you'll get all you know you'll get all those promises made or, I mean, usually what happens with the Democrats, they'll run to the left, then they govern from the center. Right. And then that's where, that's where you start getting all this animosity from these voters who are like, no. I mean, in many ways, that's what happened. I mean, you could explain the Obama voter then going to the Trump voter. They're like, oh, well, I didn't get any of my promises met. But they don't realize it's because both the, Re- the Republicans at the time blocked everything that Obama wanted to right. do for the most part. And they lost both the House and the Senate. Uh, I think they lost the House and the Senate. They didn't have in the last couple of years of uh, Obama's presidency. So, of course, he wasn't going to be able to follow through on what he had
0: promised. Well, I mean, that's one of the points that I do make is that John Boehner tried to work with Obama and he got kicked out because Mm -hmm. at that time is whenever, which what you're explaining right now reminds me of the Tea Party. Yeah. So you had the conservatives and then all of a sudden you had the Tea Party come up. They win a couple of seats and then in the following election, they win a few more. And all of a sudden, they are driving the agenda for the Republican Party. And so, is that what we what you think we're looking at for the uh, progressives, if we are able to pull that off? Because now we have the courts to deal with, right? Yeah, so the, courts the are be there for so, a so laws long time. right, and so therefore the laws are going to have to be written very intelligently, mm-hmm. because all that the courts do is interpret.
1: Yeah. Supposedly. At
0: Supposedly. Least. But yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: No, I mean, it, this is the thing, you know, heavy lies the crown. So if progressives do win, they're going to have to find out really fast that politics, again, politics in this country is set up to be a two party system, which means all it is is no is, all it is is negotiations. It's not a multi party system where all that is is coalitions. Look at like, look at Britain, like you have coalitions or, or most of Europe for that matter. You have coalitions of these parties who might not. And going back to the original question that you asked, you have to create coalitions in order to govern as effectively as possible and to make your proposals more um, palatable to people. Uh, when it's just a two-party system, too much of it is just watered-down agreements that uh, better the parties but don't necessarily better the people. It's it's a hard thing to do. So if progressives come in, like you can't govern, you cannot govern as a party of one. That's what, that's Trump's biggest mistake. He did not want to govern for the entire country. He only wanted to govern for his followers. And that breeds animosity. Obama tried to do the same as well. Like I do believe like you need to have a coalition and you need to bring everyone in. It's just smart politics. It keeps you around longer. Like there's there's no way you're gonna be in office forever if you try to rule like, you know, like a dictator, dictator's fall.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what Bush did effectively because he really was not popular after that Florida, you know, chat thing that happened, yeah. and so. But throughout the 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 war effort, um, he was uh, he reached out to both sides. Now, how much of that? Actually, it, I think his immigration policies were softer than even Obama. Oh wow! So, oh yeah.
1: No, I I always told my. Democratic friends, and I did not like Bush at all because of Iraq war, but I'm like, he's going to be the best bet for us to have an immigration bill passed, right. and his own party blocked it. He was able to get the Democrats on board and some Republicans, but the crazy Republicans blocked it, and here we are. Well, he left 2008, 12 years later. It, we're, we're, we don't have any immigration plan, and we're not going to have, well, we will have an immigration plan if, uh, again, the, the Democrats beat everything but now it's so freaking poisoned that only a re- it should have been under a republicans like the old saying only nixon could have gone to china <laughs> only nixon could have gone yeah. to china only a republican could have passed an immigration bill we'll see how it goes with a, if it's a democrat
0: so then okay that makes me think um, again going back to the latino community in this divide um, cubans Disproportionately uh, voted for Trump in, in Miami-Dade, right in, in yep. Miami, in the in Miami area. And Cubans came here illegally.
1: <laughs> Don't tell them that. <laughs> you yeah. know,
0: uh, until um,
1: until very recently.
0: Very very recently. I mean, all they had to do was cross that 50-mile threshold, and uh, and they were they were giving uh, aid. Of course. And so. To me, it's, it's I keep looking at the Latino community and saying like they're, we're divided on the wrong at the wrong things. And it's 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 uh, uh, that class system mm-hmm. is that I'm already here and I'm a I citizen. I got mine. I got mine. So let's keep these immigrants out because yep. they might, might not give me mine. And so how do we go about that? Because immigration has been it's, it's always a hot topic immigration is what's been separating the country because even the black community there's some people that's like well I don't even care about immigration that's not my issue my Yeah, a lot, issue- of
1: bla- lot of black folks in fact a lot of black folks are against undocumented immigration period Cause right they see it as uh they're coming in and messing up what they have
0: right and so then that's a coalition that we were sort of counting on for a while which was the brown and black vote yeah coming together and and that's that's a lot you know that's 25 percent of the population if not more at this point
1: Yep, um it's it's tough it's tough with the issue of immigration but even among latino voters you'd be surprised every time they do a poll uh immigration is not the top issue it's always the economy so it goes back to coalition like and it's about making people care about the issue and the only way you're going to make people care about the issue is speak to them in their language like right now in southern california there's a lot of protest by armenians over what's happening over you know, between Armenia and Azerbaijan over some right. uh, a region in Azerbaijan that's settled by ethnic Armenians, and so they're having big protests, thousands of people. No one care, no one else cares though, besides Armenians. I think it's a sad thing because I th- I do think it's an important topic, but no one cares because Armenians have never bothered to try to like put like talk about that issue to people who are not Armenians. And then when people say like, "What's that about?" It's like, "Oh, you know, it's human rights, blah blah blah," and people are like, "Uh, so why should?" Why should people care like why should i care about your particular issue like i don't and so same thing with immigration like the black community is not going to look at it the way latinos do and not even all latinos are going to look at it the same way mm-hmm. so how do you make those people care like i think far too often when it comes to immigration there's too many appeals to emotion appeals to emotion are sometimes the weakest arguments possible because those emotions can turn into hate very fast
0: right right well then Okay, so the daily, I think it was today or yesterday, put had a, a piece on uh, the economics of uh, police brutality. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you saw it, but it focuses on Chicago and says that Chicago, over the last decade, has spent seven hundred million dollars in settlements. Actually, with with uh, interest, it was one point seven billion. So there was yeah. a billion dollars worth of interest on that, and and so. I guess now what you're saying is we would have to frame immigration along the same lines. Because, yeah. it, I, and which is, I find interesting in that, when was it that uh, Bush did a crackdown on uh, immigration? I think in 2007 or six, around there, where in Georgia, immigrants were starting to leave. So the farms weren't being yep. harvested. And uh, they couldn't pay people $15, $20 an hour to do the job. People walking off the job on the first day.
1: I mean, you could pay you could pay you can pay them a hundred thousand dollars a year, and people still want, wouldn't want to do that job. It is hard work. Americans do not want to do that type of labor anymore, no matter how much you pay them. And of course, those farmers are not going to pay you a hundred thousand dollars. They'll at most will pay you twenty thousand dollars because hey, it's just picking strawberries. Anyone can do it, but that's the thing—not just anyone. Nobody
0: ever, yeah, no, not everyone wants to do it.
1: Exactly. No one, no one wants to do it. You only do it out of economic necessity.
0: Huh. Okay, so now uh, shifting the conversation to one of the the other passions, um, which is food. Uh, What's your favorite tequila?
1: (laughs) Um, Which one do I like? I like, well, my favorite uh, bottom shelf tequila would be Corralejo because I like Uh. the sweetness. I love the bottle and I love the uniqueness of it. The fact that it's from Guanajuato, one of the few one of the few non Jalisco tequilas I've made any name brand recognition, but I do like Fortaleza. Fortaleza is good as well. Uh, uh what's the other one? Not Casa Amigo. I don't care about that one. Um,
0: Casa Dragones?
1: Uh, no, no, no. It, 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 it it's, Oh Jesus H. Christ. It, it starts also <laughs> with, it's, it's another cheap brand, but it's, it's good. It starts with the letter C. Um, ah, not, I haven't bought it in a while, but anyways, um, or you know i also like the one um the one with the angel of independence uh w- with with the cool like art deco style bottle
0: oh yeah Lionel.
1: yeah
0: Yeesh, i don't know
1: <laughs> yeah whatever anyways <laughs> i i you know i like tequila but uh, to be honest i've always been a bigger fan of bourbon i i am a big bourbon fan i love uh bitter drinks period and i, I don't, again i love tequila I like I love mezcal as well, but bourbon I'm more of a bourbon guy.
0: Oh, so what's your favorite bourbon?
1: and all the bartenders know that's like their secret, like.
0: Oh yeah. They I'm not putting this on the podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, too late. I, I say it. I, I always I always break. I always break. Bust out that secret, but like, it's so it's so cheap, but it's so good. Like yeah. it's just a, it's better than some of these forty fifty dollar bottles. But um, the one it's got, got more other,
0: balance than yeah. than a lot of those other bottles.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, no. But then the other one, I love Willet as well. Willet uh Willet's a really good bourbon brand as well. And then um, of course you could only I don't know, I don't think you can get this in Texas yet, but west east of the Mississippi there's a brand called Very Old Bartons, which is very good as well. Huh.
0: Okay, no, I haven't I haven't had that one. I mean yeah. Plus the thing is it's like the last six months I've been out of the loop, so I haven't been getting tasted on sure, a lot sure, of new sure, stuff. Sure. So it, it may or may not be here uh i wouldn't know i, I love I don't, I
1: don't think it is what, what do you like
0: um uh, i mean like actually i like nearly everything that they do at that distillery heaven hill yeah uh yeah. you know rittenhouse yep. uh larceny uh, elijah craig yeah I mean, that that distillery really it, uh, dows into my uh my palate and bernheim is the other one that i think is incredible value that's
1: uh, a good
0: one yeah and it's got it's got texture yeah aside from that four roses
1: that's a really good one as well like me i i've actually been to a lot of these distilleries. that's how much i like bourbon so i'll go out like to the classic ones four roses was a really really good one i also like you know i've always been a fan of wild turkey too wild turkey it just it's they're
0: a rare breed i really like
1: rare breed yeah the the, the higher end wild turkeys are especially good but even this regular wild turkey is not a bad bourbon
0: for me, the the thing about wild uh, wild turkey, the regular one, is that it's got too much of the char. Like, I taste too much of the wood and the char. Yeah. And I and I can understand where people are gonna like that. It's just not for my my palate. Sure,
1: um, sure, sure.
0: I, that's why I say like it has that that right balance. Yeah, uh, totally. Of it all. So then, what 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 type of tacos would you uh, pair with uh, bourbon?
1: <laughs> oh boy, um, all of them, I guess. But... <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I mean, well,
0: I mean, talk about Mexican American.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, you, you got to, with meat tacos, you want those heavy flavors, those really rich flavors to go with that really rich bourbon, uh, or or especially with like bourbon cocktails or whatnot. Although, I honestly, I like to drink my bourbon neat Like, I like old fashions. I love Manhattan's. I, I lie, actually. I love Manhattan's. Love, love, love Manhattan. So, if, there's actually a place uh, wh- where we live here in Orange County. It's a modern Mexican restaurant, and the bartender, though, does very. Does a lot of stuff with bourbon. So they make just like the tacos, you know, the pastor, the uh, carnitas. Although I'm more, I've always been more of a beef person than a pork person. So just some, uh, you know, just tacos de asada uh, with the bourbon, Manhattan, goes great.
0: Yeah, I would suggest then that you do uh, always make sure that you have quality uh, vermouth. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And uh, do a 50-50 Manhattan. Ooh, with, what's with, that? With an uh, overproof uh, bourbon. You're just using equal parts instead of the regular two-to-one ratio. So usually it's like two ounces of bourbon and one or, or rye, either one. Yeah. But two ounces of whiskey, one ounce of, uh, of sweet vermouth, and then like a dash or two of bitters. So you go equal parts. So you do like one ounce and one ounce. Okay. And then you're going to get, a, especially if it's overproof, 110 proof or so yeah yeah you're gonna get that heat working and opening up the flavors of the vermouth it's gonna taste like a regular manhattan because again you got that that heat yeah uh, but i think you'll probably enjoy it
1: mm, good good to know thank you
0: yeah <laughs> so and so then uh so how is the bar scene right now during covid uh, in la
1: it's non-existent i mean la LA, especially, they're still under a far more restrictive shutdown than Orange County is. Orange, because I'm in Orange County, so Orange County restaurants are open at 25% capacity, indoor, indoor seating. Um, but in California, they've loosened the ABC, they've loosened the liquor regulations so that almost anyone can sell. But you can't sell alcohol without food involved. So right. a lot, you're seeing a lot of these bars, they'll open and, and you can serve alcohol outside without the the, uh, the the license they usually need. So what'll happen is these bars they'll have tents outside and then they'll serve like shitty food, like nachos or hot, like it doesn't matter what you buy as long as it's food that goes along with your alcohol. But right. you know, a lot of times when people go to bars, they just want to drink, they don't want to go eat and they want to be inside and relax. So a lot of bars are hurting bad. Hurting, hurting bad, especially bars more than restaurants.
0: So how are restaurants doing?
1: <laughs> a little bit better, but still, Beetles as as you say in Spanish, <laughs> fucked. Um, it's bad. I mean, at the end, the restaurant industry is always so volatile. I think people what and 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 my wife runs a market in Delhi, uh, so this is where this where this is coming from, and she also serves alcoholic beer and soju. You know. Uh, soju flavored cocktails yeah no so she she does some really good stuff and now you're like the soju's especially the soju the flavored soju's. they've gotten great over the years i remember the earlier days when it just like bourbon flavored soju was just disgusting now you drink it's like oh man this is actually good it tastes like bourbon the only thing that stops it of course is not as hot because you know it doesn't have the alcohol level but it tastes just like bourbon it's like they've done really good but anyway so with restaurants a lot of these restaurants thought oh it's only going to be one or two months like We'll just deal with it. Here we are seven months later, they're opening, but at 25% capacity. And since things run on such short margins anyway, a lot of these restaurants do not have savings. They applied for the PVP loans and already used it all. So it's they're gonna close down even more, especially once the winter months come in. If we have a winter now with global warming yeah. in California, it's been a very, very hot summer nor- or very, very hot fall too. But once it starts raining, people are not going to go out as much because you're going to have more flu, you're going to have more coronavirus. You're going to be inside now and people don't want to be inside with air conditioning anymore. It's it's been devastating. We all, I mean, I don't think we're going to know how devastating it is until the, oh, in, in about a decade when we can look back and hopefully this is gone. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that that's that's for sure. I think here we we have the same thing going on and in addition to that, uh I think that what's really hurting it because Texas is pretty much opened up. Oh sure, right? Yeah, Greg and, Abbott
1: doesn't believe in coronavirus. No,
0: <laughs> no, but he still kept the uh, bars closed until about a week or two ago. Oh
1: wow, that's interesting. And
0: so it was about maybe ten days ago that they uh, allowed bars to reopen at fifty percent. Okay. Which is not a, which is not a whole lot because you normally small bars make money because the the, the footprint versus the volume. Yeah. Uh, but I think the the main thing here that that I've been looking at is that the demographics and the demographics are that older people baby boomers that have the expendable income are the ones at high risk so they're the ones that don't want to go out and expose themselves yeah so then even if we open completely and half of people going out the one that spends the most is not yeah and i believe also that the restaurant industry the bar industry was in a boom in a bubble Mm. There yeah. were too many. We oh were...
1: God! Yeah, I mean, the past, really, with the advent of social media and Yelp, like we've been on this huge, huge uh, trend where where restaurants and eating out had become a thing like it had never been before in terms of cool, being cool, and and all that, you know. So it was a bubble. I mean, this is the Great Depression for restaurants. Like the bubble completely burst. So much is going to come crashing down especially you know you say that with the small with the bars but also like the higher end restaurants as well like no one wants to go spend hundred and some bucks right now on food they don't
0: well yeah no absolutely and cocktail bars is the other one that i'm thinking because cocktail bars have a, oh, yeah. a tighter margin and so you're not going to be able to run that anymore because the volume doesn't exist so i think that you know whatever is going to be left uh after is gonna be have to be really really smart it's a lot of the things we should have been doing a long time ago um yeah no yeah yeah well man i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me um yeah was there something else that you wanted to to mention
1: uh no just i mean if if your listeners liked anything i had to say today please follow me uh I have a weekly newsletter called Gustavo Ariano's Weekly. Go to my website gustavoarellano.org, and uh, you can subscribe there. And I every I just send it once a week. I send a link to all the stories that I've done for the week, all the podcasts that I've appeared on, like this one. Like I'll definitely plug it. And yeah, uh, and and thank you for thank you for this opportunity. Uh, Politics and alcohol, awesome. <laughs> I love it. That, that's not a podcast I usually do, but so I, I, I'm always excited about podcasts that are. That offer me something new besides the usual stuff I get. Uh, I get to talk about.
0: Well, if we do this again, we'll probably just throw in religion in there too.
1: <laughs> oh, I, can, <laughs> I love religion. I really do. So it'll be a great conversation.
0: So that was a great interview with someone that I, I find uh, quite interesting. Um, there were a couple of things, though, um, that I wanted to to clarify on that and. Uh, One of them is at the very beginning that I I say that conservatives is always uh, God first, especially with the Latinos. That sounds like uh, liberals are a bunch of heathens, which is not the truth. Uh, A lot of uh, liberals that I know are also people that believe in in religion and have some religion in their life, or they're simply just spiritual. But it's just the the idea that you would drop everything and, and vote against all of your other interests, just because a candidate claims to be uh, representing your faith. That's what I meant on that. Um, And then the idea tends to be or or the way that that tends to manifest itself in the current political climate has to do with abortion. And I think that there are also a fair amount of of, uh, liberals that do not necessarily, would not participate in abortion, but it's, it's the same as you know, is that thing to where you're you're getting into somebody else's business? They don't necessarily believe that it should be illegal, and so, you know, it, it kind of makes me think sometimes of of whenever there were laws against uh, mixed marriages, like who, who's, why is it any of the state's business? You know, the government's business who you marry. Gay marriage is another one, right? That uh, a lot of uh, um, religious people um, can't get behind again whose business is it you know why is it your business um who marries who so then he also mentioned very old barton which is a bourbon that i used to keep I actually i have a bottle here at home but i used to keep that was my well uh bourbon uh at one point and uh for whatever reason i just didn't hear him right and uh i you know missed that one so if you're going to find him on social media, uh, you can find uh, Gustavo Arellano on Twitter and Gustavo Arellano on, um, on Instagram. You search uh, that name and uh, his, his account will pop up. So being that this is a podcast about the restaurant and the bar industry, I decided to call up my friend Matt. Um, Matt likes to go out and check out all the new places. Um, he has, a, I think, an excellent palate and a very good understanding of, of, of food and drink. Um, and so thought, I thought I'd uh, call him up and, so he can tell me what are the new cool places and tasty places and uh, worthwhile places to go to uh, right now during the, uh, the COVID days. Whiskey bar that can't make an old fashioned. And, uh, and so it, 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 it kills me that they are considered such a great bar. They're just a whiskey library and that's it. You know, yeah. Like
2: I think Chris Morris had like a very good point. He's like, I don't get to them a whiskey bar. I get to them a dive bar that happens to have a lot of whiskey.
0: Yeah, and the and the fucked up part about it is that you know Bobby Hugo raves about the place being so fucking awesome, and and can't teach the motherfuckers how to make a three ingredient (laughs) cocktail. But more importantly, they have the ingredients. They're willing to make it reluctantly. They used Knob Creek rye. That was just that. That that was just, uh, you know, I'm not gonna get into what they were thinking. Whoever made it, but that was just a nasty thing to do. There's no fucking way. I know that with your eyes closed, you can make a Knob Creek rye old fashioned that is ten times better than that one.
2: Me on the phone for what you want to talk
0: about? Some Houston food? Yeah, I mean, uh, I want to know what um, what you've been up to and uh, if you've been hitting up a, any news, uh, any of the new spots. I mean, if you've been to Permission, I'd like to uh, to hear what what your thoughts are on it. So I haven't been to my Permission.
2: I haven't been really out and about drinking very much. I made a quick stop at Camarada like a week or two ago. That was cool. It was a friend's birthday party, so she had never been. So went in for some like quick birthday bubbles, and they're still killing it. Their service is impeccable. You know the yeah. bartenders are knowledgeable and friendly and passionate, which is always a good thing. As far as like new restaurants that I've been to, um, Blue Dorn in the old Pass and Provision spot. Yeah. They are absolutely killing it, man. Uh, Chef is kind of a well-known guy. Um, worked at Cafe Bleu in New York. Is uh, married to one of the daughters of, like, the Papa's family. And they met when they were out there working together. And she brought him back down to Houston to open his own place. And he's been on some, like, Netflix, like, cooking competitions, this thing called uh, Final Table. He was on that. And uh, the guy knows his stuff man the food is impeccable it's really? the service is fantastic I had like I was lucky that just so happened to work out that the week they opened uh, I took a friend there and then somebody else took me there so I worked, got to go twice in one week and for them having just opened the doors the service was incredible it was some of the best service I've had in the city and seeing that from a restaurant that's just opened the doors was really, really impressive. Uh, Their front of manager, our front of house manager is a guy that came down with them from New York. Um, This guy named Sharif, super cool and just totally like embodies hospitality like as a person. Makes you feel right at home and keeps like the staff working like a fucking well-oiled machine. It was hella, hella impressive and the food was crazy good. They definitely have one of my uh, for top dish of the year so far Wow! they're doing a lobster pot pie pretty big it is fucking expensive though but the pastry crust on top is super buttery super flaky it's got the whole like egg wash lacquer on top so it's nice and shiny and then come and pop it open like at the table so the server drops it cuts it open and as soon as they cut it open all the steam from the filling just hits you and you get this sweet succulent lobster aroma wow. just punching you right in the face and then they whip in some lime creme fraiche to kind of brighten it up a little bit and then serve it to you and dude it just has huge chunks of lobster I'm sure if you wanted to you could pick it all out and reassemble the entire lobster Damn. fucking lobsters in this thing
0: so, and how much was rich that? And
2: oh, man. Somewhere between 60 and 70 bucks.
0: Oh, uh, my dear. So, is, is, that, is, that, is that the uh, price point at that spot? Uh, I
2: would say, yeah. Entree. I mean, they've got small plates in the kind of $20 range, and they've got like Entree plates in the like 40 to 60 to 70 kind of range. Um,
0: so, it's high say, end. So,
2: Expecting like, yeah, high end, like over a hundred but like a hundred bucks per person.
0: Damn, that's but, uh... man, It was really impressive to see kind of somebody open a spot that ambitious in the middle of COVID in Houston. And well, then to see it packed out both nights. The first time I went was like at nine PM on a Tuesday and they were full. I think we're going back to these uh, places that I remember from the 90s that was uh, like the Tony's, um, uh, what was the other ones? Uh, Posto Grill, Cafe Annie, you know, where there were just high-end places and then you had everything else in the industry. But my point is is that what's gonna go forward is gonna be a lot of either fast casual at best and then uh, high-end.
2: Happen with spots like Riel going to, like, their lunchtime sandwich shop thing. You see, like, Bo also kind of entering the sandwich game. You see Peacemaker Po' Boys popping back up with Chef Graham Laborde from Bernadine's and from Killin's now also doing sandwiches. Like, I feel you're going to see that kind of, not necessarily dumbing down of food but kind of like a return to something that's like more affordable and accessible as opposed to what we've seen in the past of people doing like really creative and kind of more avant-garde stuff like I don't think anybody's going to be opening foreign correspondence in Houston,
0: Texas in the next couple of years you know? Yeah, yeah a couple of years I think in the next 5 or 10 years (laughs) and
2: yeah, who knows like what this like return to normal is going to be? Are we just going to have you know COVID for the rest of time? Is it something we're going to live with?
0: I don't know. Well, I I think it's beyond that. Uh, it, the The industry has suffered, and I think a lot of people are going to have to retool and go to other industries. A lot of you know waiters, bartenders, bar managers, you know people that that made a living with this because again, it's, it's going to get really. I think it's going to get tight in, in what you can do because all of those restaurants that I talked about provided different opportunities than before, right? Because either fine dining is very specific as to who they hire and then, you know, high volume places. Well, that's not where, you know, like uh, me, I, I never liked working in those places. And so those chef driven restaurants gave other opportunities and so i think that, that a lot of people are going to move to to different industries
2: to that point though i do want to break in and mention this one restaurant that i've been absolutely like blown away by that's actually out in spring texas in old town spring called dolly of the beast these guys i don't know exactly how long they've been open but it's uh chef owned this guy came up, I believe, working in LA at OTM under Tom Hollingsworth, another guy who was also in that same final table chef's cooking competition thing, but this guy moved down here with his family, opened his tiny little like place out in Old Town Spring. They're only open for dinner service and I think it's only like four or five days a week and they're absolutely killing it and the price point isn't outrageous. I think they do like family like family packs of to-go food for like sixty to seventy bucks, which I don't think is completely unreasonable, especially for the quality of food you're getting. And it's definitely more of like a kind of chefy take on kind of like Tex-Mex, but really, really fucking good. The best of tacos that I've had so far in Houston.
0: Hmm. So I wonder then how many of these chefs are going to go out to the suburbs. And open up there because exactly. it That's is cheaper. Where it's cheaper
2: and people don't have to drive into town, it's not like a destination thing. Yeah. When you're out and fucking, I mean.
0: Well, hey, I, I hope what I'm hoping happens is we'll
2: see the proliferation of places like Rosewater out in Clear Lake that right. are doing it well, uh, that are committed to craft, and can find that little niche in their you know little set market the fucking Chili's for keeping keeping their like full meal with a drink and a dessert for 10 bucks like i get it the quality's bad. like not that great but Jesus, that's that's like how nobody like a real restaurant
0: can't survive at that price point right right and so what i'm getting at it is is that i think now they understand or probably have like i said just been accustomed to that quality and they're willing to support it more than they were 15 years ago but also it was a matter of uh staffing it you know somebody who lives in the woodlands is not going to work in a restaurant so what do you have you have high school kids that don't give a shit so your quality is never going to be the same as it is in the inner city where you have the professionals that live and work here but i think that has changed i think now as as we start to build these uh Multi-use um, uh, buildings and in, in communities. Well, now it, it probably would make sense to some of the people that we know to live in Spring, right? And and they're yeah, able to yeah. to find a spot that they can work there because it's only going to be a few.
2: I've definitely had some friends that I've worked with from conservatory that they were going through culinary school, got out looking for a job, did the back of house thing for a while at you know. Harry's Steakhouse or, you know, Robards or where have you up in the woodlands. And then within, you know, three months, they're on the floor because that's where the money's at. So you definitely are going to see people that have been exposed to kind of more of like fine dining and more, I guess, chef-driven kind of creative food yeah. with ingredients and techniques that you're run-of-the-mill people like the kind of stuff that you would have to explain to a table that kind of stuff like yeah. what is a rabbit goat you know or what yeah. does sous vide mean that kind of stuff that's being more commonplace and you have these people how to that,
0: pronounce <laughs> <laughs> um, it a couvert a couvert you have to put a little je sais quoi on the end <laughs> <laughs> yeah um interesting so so tell me real quick uh we got about one minute left what is the um what, what are the top three places i, I should uh, visit that are not gonna break the covid bank
2: not gonna break the covid bank all right belly of the beast i think you can sneak it in it's absolutely worth the drive they are killing it they are doing magic things out there um definitely hit up bees at Duner kebab They're out there on Westheimer, way out on the Southwest. It is a food truck to get the Adana kebab on French bread. And definitely, like, thank me later. Like, DM me and tell me how good it was. (laughs) I literally will drive 30 minutes out of my way to go to this place. It is that fucking fire. And then to round out my top three, man, all right, I'm going to give a special mention to Aqua S. Because they have absolutely fire soft serve, and I absolutely love the interior design of that place. It's so, like, cozy and fun and welcoming. Like, every time you walk in, I feel at least 30% less depressed than I did before I walked in. And they switch up their soft serve flavors twice a month. It's always something good. The sea salt is year round and it is chef's kiss
0: delicious <laughs> so wait a second so one of them is in spring the second one what did you say was?
2: Bees doner Kebab they are out on the southwest side near like Fogo de Chao
0: okay and then what's the last one?
2: last one is Aqua S
0: they have where are they in, at? In, in, on Bel Air in Chinatown and they have one I believe in the Heights Yale maybe okay okay yeah, because I was looking at something that uh, also in the, in the uh, inner loops where I don't have to, uh, to drive too far.
2: I hear you. Man, that is, I mean, it's getting harder and harder to find good, affordable food inner, inside the loop.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I, to I believe have to that. venture out more and more. Well, man, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and uh, your uh, expertise yeah next time we talk i'll probably i'll
2: try and have some like juicy food world gossip for you (laughs) awesome (laughs) like who's uh which james beard award-winning chef doesn't tip the delivery
0: driver oh that's fucked up that's terrible it's fucked up i'll 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 I'll, I'll always leave you one more so that's uh, the next edition okay all right so there you have it everyone there are a couple of suggestions for all of you who live here in Houston. If you are visiting Houston, uh, same thing, go check it out. There's a lot happening in the restaurant industry right now. There's a lot that is uh, changing and um, we are not sure what the restaurant industry is gonna look like once it comes, we get over the, uh, the COVID and uh, we see what happens with the next stimulus package and uh, how the economy is able to recover from this. There is a lot of pent up um, demand for services, Uh, not so much in goods, because we've been able to order online. And I think that next year is gonna be an interesting year. I mean, can it be worse than 2020? Possibly, but let's hope not. If you have a smart device, you can listen on Alexa. Um, You can ask for, the open bar experience also we have our own website which is openbar.space you can check us out also on your favorite app whether it is iheart radio tune in uh, stitcher or apple Podcasts. check it out the open bar experience remember take care of yourself take care of each other and keep the conversation going